Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. The Ontario NDP under fire over controversial comments by a Hamilton MPP. The downbound Claremont access is close to reopening. Plus, fire prevention tips, building wartime homes, a step back for the NHL, and a Seinfeld reunion? The GMH podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. There continues to be calls to remove Hamilton Center MPP Sarah Jama from caucus following her controversial statement about the Israel-Hamas war. And I'll remind you, if you haven't seen it or heard about this, using NDP letterhead, Jama called for an end to the occupation of Palestinian lands, and her statement did not mention the attack on Israel by Hamas militants. You know, innocent civilians being murdered by the te- these terrorists. Uh, but no mention of that. Now, 24 hours later, Jama wrote that she understands the pain many Jewish Canadians must be feeling, and she apologizes, saying she unequivocally condemns the Hamas attack on Israeli civilians. That should have been the only thing she should have said at the outset. Yet her initial statement has not been retracted. The NDP continues to retain Ms. Jama as a sitting member in their caucus, which makes me and others wonder, how sincere is her apology? Michael Levitt is the president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Michael, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I, like many, found Miss Jamma's comments abhorrent, reprehensible. I mean, you you can uh, pick your superlative. Um, And I don't buy her apology for one second. How are you and friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center doing during this very difficult time? Listen, we we have never experienced uh, the type of horrors that we saw coming through social media, the phone calls we are getting from people with family and friends in Israel. Uh, This is such an incredibly uh, difficult time, both for the Jewish community in Canada but of course, for Israelis that are just reeling uh, and trying to come to terms with what's going on. And of course, they're now facing um, uh, violence and uh, threats on multiple borders. So, yeah, a very, very difficult time. And of course, that's the context for uh, whether it's uh, Sarah Jama or CUPE Ontario, and in particular, a CUPE local in Hamilton uh, and Lots of these other situations that are just throwing fuel on the fire and uh, are, are very, very disturbing for the Jewish community and, and far beyond that, too. Yeah, the CUPE local in Hamilton you mentioned is tied with McMaster University. I haven't, I haven't yeah. seen a statement from the school to condemn such action. If it, if, if it has happened, you know, great. If not, I mean, something has to be done. And, 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 you know, to make matters worse on the weekend, too, as innocent people are being killed, there's rallies in this country celebrating what Hamas did, which is unconscionable. Yeah, that's right. I, if you can't as an individual, as a leader, as just a person of good conscience, muster up the moral clarity to unconditionally, unequivocally condemn the slaughter of innocent civilians at the hand of genocidal terrorists, um, resign, step down, go look in the mirror and take a hard look uh, at who you are, because this was good versus evil, full stop. Condemn it, be unequivocal, uh, support the Jewish community and others impacted by these atrocities, but the type of equivocation that we have seen from some of these individuals is just absolutely, unabashedly, completely out of line. 
Michael Levitt is the president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Uh, we're talking about uh, Hamilton Center NDP MPP Sarah Jama's controversial comments, even though she has apologized for saying what she did. Um, her initial statement has not been retracted, which party leader Marit Stiles called for, and it still hasn't come. Are, are you surprised, disappointed? I mean, what are you feeling that she is still with the NDP? My position is that the apology is much too little, much too late. You're right. The original post, which has caused so much hurt and harm, is still up on her Twitter feed. Uh, the the statement yesterday came, you know, 18, 19 hours later. Uh, Merritt Stiles, leader of the Ontario NDP, explicitly called for the earlier statement to be retracted. That hasn't happened. Why is she still sitting in that caucus? I cannot understand, and I understand there's others in that NDP caucus that are very, very concerned um, about what's gone on, about the impact you know, th- this is having on the reputation of the provincial party. We, we saw Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the federal party, be you know, strong and unequivocal in condemning Hamas on the weekend. And I have to say, we saw party leaders across the aisle in Ottawa, we saw, you know, a, a Doug Ford, we saw a Olivia Chow, we saw lots of leaders come out uh, and, you know, and, and, and whether it was in the context of the rallies, the hate rallies, supporting, celebrating Hamas, uh, or whether it was the initial incidents, we've seen lots of pe- people speak out strong and clear why the Ontario NDP can't uh, muster the courage to be able to deal with this situation. And let's, let's remind ourselves, this is not the first go-round that uh, MPP JAMA has had with the Jewish community in Hamilton and across the province. We've had multiple situations uh, where she has caused, again, hurt and, uh, and uh, you know, created situations with the Jewish community. Time for her to be cut loose. Another reason why I'm taking her apology uh, with a grain of salt, for sure. We have 90 seconds left in this okay. segment. I, I do want to ask you, because now we're now a war is, is unfolded. Israel against Hamas, and these two uh, um, entities are going at each other. There are no winners in war. There's going to be so many more innocent people being killed on both sides, and it's really, really unfortunate. It is absolutely awful. I completely agree with you. Hamas is a terror group. Hamas went into Israel, it, it you know, slaughtered civilians left, right and center. We, I don't even want to raise on the radio uh, the, the type of images that we've seen as it relates to women and their treatment, torture, uh, uh, children, infants, uh, everybody. It's just it's horrendous. But let's also remember they've then run back in to Gaza, an area with lots of civilians. They've, they've taken the prisoners back in, they've abducted people, taken them back into Gaza. Hamas has also placed great jeopardy uh, for Gazan citizens, citizens that many of them were coming into Israel on work permits to work and live their lives. But Hamas, a terrorist group, cares not about that. They care about their genocidal objective of wiping Israel off the map, and Israeli civilians and Gazans are going to suffer as a result of that. Hamas bears the responsibility for every one of these civilians that is impacted. It's awful. Michael, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Michael Levitt is the president and CEO of Friends of Simon Wiesenthal Center.
You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. The downbound lanes have been closed, as you probably know, if you're a lover of the Claremont Access as well, closed since March as the city wanted to address some erosion concerns uh, on the rock face next to the popular uh, mountain access. And I'm pretty sure that this project was supposed to be done uh, sometime in the summer. August, September kind of comes to mind. I was thinking just the other day as I was going up the Claremont, because it's still like a you know active construction zone, when is this going to reopen? Here with the answer is Jackie Kennedy, the Director of Engineering Services with the City of Hamilton, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Jackie, good morning. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. So before we get to uh, the the glorious reopening dates that I'm eagerly anticipating, what has been done so far? So far, we have removed all of the steel walls that people would be used to seeing along the escarpment um, and and done a lot of scaling. And so the scaling is the removal of any loose materials along the escarpment, and that's a stretch of about... 500 meters worth of um, worth of length and then all the way up to the top of the escarpment. Yeah, it looks like a lot of scaling has been done or, or scraping of those loose rocks. How further back have, have you gone? Um, the depth of the removal, we've gone to as far as we've needed to to make sure that there's no more loose materials. So it'll vary from location to location. Um, but you can, if you're driving up the Claremont, you can see that there's a lot of material along the road at this point um, that'll need to be removed in the future. So you can get a sense for the volume of work from that. Um, but uh, but it's it's coming along well, and and we are in the final weeks of the work. All right. So what still needs to be done before we can put that final seal of approval that the downbound lanes will reopen? Well, I'm happy to tell you that the scaling work was finished last week. That's a big milestone to get to. There's some debris still on the top shelf of the escarpment, so way up high. Um, We're going to remove that so that if any materials do fall onto that shelf, it doesn't sort of cascade down. Uh, That's going to happen over the next couple of days um, with a a very large uh, piece of equipment that can reach up high. Uh, After that, the contractor Rankin is going to be bringing in some trucks to start removing the materials from the from along the road. So everything that was taken off the escarpment um, and has been sitting on the road waiting to be hauled off site to another location, that's going to happen next. Um, Then we're going to put the fencing back up um, and and open the road up. Oh, wait, one more thing. We're going to we're going to clean up the road, too. So we're going to do some patching on the road, uh, repaint the lines, and then we'll be opening the road. So when is the grand opening date? Well, the date's always going to be a bit in question because there's weather that can uh, that can impact things and we never quite know what to expect there. But we're down to a few weeks at this point, so we're still hoping for an October date. Okay, so wow, towards the end of the month, I'm, I'm guessing. Yep, that's correct. What challenges did this project present? Because it's a massive undertaking. It is a massive undertaking. And as you drive past, you can really see uh, the change is pretty evident. There's been a lot of um, a lot of work done manually. So if you've uh, noticed, there's there's folks that are tied off on some harnesses. They've got ropes that they're hanging off the edge of the escarpment on and doing a lot of this work manually. Um, so that means that there's some um, some timing that needs to be thought of. It's 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 slow work and and meticulous work. Uh, and the safety factors that come into play with this have been really of of the most we have to make sure we're doing things safely for the workers. 
so having the the people that are up top tied off and belay down from the the um, park you can't have people working underneath them either so uh, so the work really has to be staggered and staged and done intentionally with with safety in mind. So I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge with the work, Rick. Is the slope stability issue now permanently solved? And and if not, is there going to be continual monitoring of it? That's a great question. Uh, the slope stability is in really great shape now. Um, we have confidence that the road is going to be safe for passage for some time. What we're going to do going forward is have a drone take some advanced imaging and um, running all along the length of it once the work is all finished before we get any snow on the on the mountain um, and then we'll do that with regularity so probably every year we'll have another drone that goes out and takes an image and then those can be overlaid and digitally compared uh, so we'll be able to see if there's any changes that we need to be concerned with and address them Last in one the meantime I was, I was just going to say, last one for you, because we're running out of time. How much did this yep. cost, and will the third downbound lane ever open again? <laughs> the The project cost uh, somewhere between four and a half and five million. Uh, we'll get the final number once the work is completed. Um, and the third downbound lane is not planned to be open at this point. So the fencing that's been up is going to continue to be there. Um, and we'll look at the capacity needs as things move forward. That third lane would be joyous, I'll say that. Jackie, thank you for your time this morning. Appreciate the update. Thank you. Jackie Kennedy is the director. You too, Jackie Kennedy, director of engineering services with the city of Hamilton. Good news by the end of this month, as you just heard, the downbound Claremont access will reopen. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. October is Fire Prevention Month, and we're asking you do you have an emergency home plan or a go bag? On X at AM900CHML, right now the early results show that most people don't. 79% of you saying, no, you do not have an emergency home plan or a go bag. Well, we got to fix that. Uh, send me a text on this topic, 905-645-3221, especially if you do have any tips to share with our listeners that I'll pass along in terms of having an emergency home plan. What do you do? Uh, or on email, rick at 900CHML.com. Well, October is not only Fire Prevention Month, this week is Fire Prevention Week. And the theme is focused on preventing kitchen fires and promoting safe cooking practices. And here to help us out is Chief Dave Cunliffe with the Hamilton Fire Department. Chief Cunliffe, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm great. How are you? I'm fantastic. Why focus on kitchen fires? Well, it's interesting, Rick. Um, Since we went through the pandemic that we don't want to talk about anymore, we've seen an increase in uh, cooking fires. And I think a lot of of it has to do with uh, people are just spending a lot more time at home. And what's happening is a cooking fire is extremely dangerous and can cause a significant amount of damage. Um, What we're finding is um, a lot of people are getting distracted while they're cooking these days. So you know, they're putting something on the stove, um, their phone is ringing, the kids are calling, somebody comes to the door, or we're seeing instances where people are actually forgetting that they've put something on the stove and they're physically leaving their homes. And what happens is is that as uh, the pot overheats, uh, depending what's in it, uh, we will potentially have a fire, and then that fire will spread to the cupboards, uh, these are very, very smoky fires, and you ha- we have smoke throughout the, the uh, home, heavy smoke, that is, that is extremely damaging. 
The worst case is, is that in some instances, people are still in the home while this is happening. Um, they are in a different room. They're not realizing they have a fire until first they hear their smoke alarm or as in many cases, Rick, because it's unfortunate we have a significant problem here in the city, 51% of the homes that we have fires in don't have working smoke alarms. They're not finding out until they actually are taking some breaths of smoke, and that's extremely dangerous. Wow, that is uh, also disturbing that uh, most people in this community don't have a working smoke alarm, and that is you know, the first sign that, uh, hey, there's an issue here. Yeah, it's extremely disturbing, Rick, because what's happened is we've seen a trend, and it's not a good one, over the last couple of years where that number has increased almost 5% um, that don't have working smoke alarms. And what people need to understand, whether it's a cooking fire in the kitchen or whether it's a fire that's caused by careless smoking or careless disposal of smoker's materials or electrical, which are the top three in the city, they don't have much to get out. Um, fires are burning hotter and faster, and, you know, I, I think it, there's days I sound like a broken record on this, is that people need to understand it's the contents in your home. And, boy, I don't know, if you think about how much how many contents you have in your home, Rick, we certainly have a lot these days. And they're not made of the natural products that they used to be. They're made of a lot of synthetics and a lot of, of uh, person-made type product. I mean, you think about the cabinets and the tables and the desks and things. I mean, a lot of that is engineered product, engineered wood with laminates and things on top. Uh, the, the pillows on your couches or your lazy boys are, is not leather. It, it tends to be synthetic. And when these start to burn, they give off uh, a lot of gases, a heavy, dark, acidic smoke. They also burn very quickly. And what we're finding today is that um, when a fire starts, literally people have minutes to get out, minutes. And I'm not talking, you know, five or six, I'm talking one to two minutes to get out before that smoke is, is just uninhabitable um, in their home. And without a working smoke alarm, they're not going to know that they have a fire. Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe from the Hamilton Fire Department joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. It's Fire Prevention Month and Fire Prevention Week this week, and this year's theme is preventing kitchen fires. Let's stay in the kitchen, and I get there are distractions. You know, your your phone is beeping, the kids might be calling, something might be happening on TV that is going to preoccupy you, whatever the case is. If a fire breaks out, is there... Uh, are, are there tips or is there some advice you can pass along to fight the fire or is it an automatic call to the fire department? Well, that's a really good question, Rick. And so it's a little bit of both. Um, certainly, we don't want people doing anything that's going to put them in more danger than they're already in with, with if they have a fire in their kitchen. First and foremost, let's make sure there's no flammable or combustible material around the stove when you're cooking. Let's make sure that you're wearing clothing that's not going to droop down over burners, especially if you, if you have a gas stove. Uh, let's make sure that if, if you are cooking with a pot, have a lid close by. If you have a little flare-up, you're able to grab that lid and slide it across and snuff out that fire. If it's a grease pan or something that goes up, what we don't want you to do is we don't want you to pick it up and carry it. First of all, there's a high probability you're going to get burned. But the second is that grease starts to slosh. And next thing you know, you've got fire dropping in different places. And it's only going to speed up that uh, uh, spread of fire. If you have a, if you have a dry chemicals uh, fire extinguisher around in the kitchen, certainly you can use it. But again, 
Our big rule is if you've got fire, get everybody out of the house, call 911 and let us get there. Because the sooner you call us and tell us you've got a problem, the sooner we can get there to help you. So I want to go back to our poll question of the day. Do you have an emergency home plan or a go bag? 79% of our listeners who are voting on this poll say they do not. Uh, I'm, I'm going to guess that you have an issue with that. Yeah, because one of the things that we really want people to do is they need to know how to get out of their homes and they need to have a plan because at two o'clock in the morning, uh, you're kind of fuzzy waking up and you're not sure what's going on. It's that muscle memory that's going to help you get out. And so it's make sure you have a plan. Make sure your family knows the plan. Uh, make sure you know that uh, how to get out of those rooms. Have two ways out. We always say that because your primary access, whether it's a door from a bedroom or or a hallway out from a room might be blocked. So are there windows, that other, other ways that you can get out that you need to know? You want to make sure that people know that there's a meeting place. So if something happens and you all evacuate that home, have a meeting point so that you know that everybody's got out. And then the other part is obviously um, call, the, call the fire department. You, you talk about a go bag, and this is really interesting. You know, We don't think anything's going to happen, but then when you think about if you are displaced, all of those important things you need, like medications, phone numbers, your cell phone might be in, this, in the incident, and you may not have it. And, and today, I know for most people, that's their whole world is on their cell phone. Wow. And, uh, you know, the muscle memory kind of comments, and we got to go here, really struck me because in, in, don't just plan your fire escape plan, actually do it, like physically do it so you know, you know, the different obstacles that you might encounter, in, encounter if a fire breaks out. I'm not saying, you know, bust out of your window, but at least, you know, uh, look for two exits and, and, and do it that way. Great tips, Chief. You're welcome, Rick. Quick, quick little story. There were some uh, children that we were talking to in school, and we actually uh, were talking to the parents, and they tested their smoke alarms in the middle of the night, and the, a couple of the kids slept right through it. Why? <laughs> because they hadn't practiced it at night. Wow, that is amazing. Well, practice those tips for sure. Chief Cunliffe, thanks for the time, and enjoy the day. Thank you, Rick. You too. That is Chief Dave Cunliffe from the Hamilton Fire Department. If you want more information on Fire Prevention Week, uh, fire prevention tips, tips for cooking safely, go online to fpw, that's fpw.org. And there's a host of information for you to dive into and make your home a safer place. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Average price of a home in this city is about $850,000, give or take a few grand here or there. And obviously that cost is very prohibitive for first-time home buyers. And for those who are in a home, they're looking around thinking, boy, if, you know, if we sell, are we going to get what we paid for a year or even a couple of years ago? And with high interest rates, are we just going to make a lateral move? And if so, if so, do we even do it? The current market is in a really sticky situation in terms of not only supply and demand, because we need a lot more supply, but the cost of homes and interest rates where they are making this a very challenging scenario for many individuals and families. And with the housing crisis that we currently have, the effort to build more homes is certainly underway, but it's not happening fast enough for many people out there. And so that brings us to the question of whether or not building wartime houses in Hamilton, will that help the housing crisis? And could it even be done in this day and age? From 1941 to 47, the government built 26,000 homes for people in the war effort and their families. Another 47,000 homes were built from 1943 to 1975 under the Veterans Land Act. 
Sounds like a good strategy. Can it work nowadays? Rob Golfie is a sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team, and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Rob, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we we uh, have all heard about wartime homes, and for those who haven't, I kind of just explained how it all works. Can that plan work in 2023? Uh, absolutely. Um, the the wartime homes are basically usually bungalows or one and a half story homes. Easily easy to build. You can build them very quickly, and uh, and they were very inexpensive. They were built out of either wood siding or or uh, 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 steel siding, and it didn't take long. They they were built within in some cases in four weeks to six weeks. That's how fast they did these houses. And uh, there's a lot of them out out there, especially on the Central Mountain and East Hamilton. Uh, they and and they were very affordable, and people were able to move into them fast. So, what's the holdup? Is is does it come down to developers saying, "Listen, yeah, we can build a bunch of these homes, but we're not going to really get the return on investment"? Is that the holdup? It, it is a little bit. They're built. That's why they're building a lot of townhouses. But a lot of these wartime homes built back in the uh, 40s and 50s and 60s. Um, they, they, the lot sizes are probably about 35 to 40 feet wide, right? By 100 feet deep. Hmm. And most people today, especially millennials, they just want a detached home. They just want like, they don't kick, you know, they just want a place where they can just put a nice little backyard, a little front yard, driveway. That's all better than living in a condo. And they can build these homes. And, and I understand, you know, they're trying to preserve the green belt. We all live on Greenland. Every single one of us have live on a property that was on Greenland. We have no problem living there, but we have a problem expanding it from there. And and but the, and also the red tape with the, the the cities and the governments that are causing causing this. And we could build fast, and the builders can build. Just don't have investors buy them. Say, hey, we're building this uh, subdivision of a thousand uh, wartime homes, style wartime style homes. Uh, bungalows, eight, and, and they, uh, they range from 650 to 900 square feet and say, no one can buy this unless you're moving in. So get rid of the investors. That slows down uh, the cost of that of those properties going up. Otherwise, you get investors buying 10 at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, you can do this. This can be done. It's just a matter of, you know, implementing it and doing it. Yeah, a stipulation could be, you know, only first-time home buyers can buy these homes, and then, and you're kind of not necessarily solving the housing crisis, but you're getting a lot of people into the market and starting to build equity. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. One of my first investment properties way back when I was 20 years old, I, I bought. It was a wartime house I bought, and uh, and it was thirty-four thousand dollars I bought it for. It was very, you know, reasonable even at the time, even at the interest rates that they were. And, uh, but now um, we've got a, an influx of investors. So we got to keep those guys out so we can get the first time buyers. I have a lady that works for me on my team and she's like, can't compete against buying a house. She's saving up like crazy. And and she she has her eye on one that we're looking at and it is a wartime house in, a, in central Hamilton <laughs> off of Kenilworth Avenue. And uh, it's about 500,000 and she's working hard trying to see if she can buy that house. Um, there's a lot of people, a lot of first-time buyers in that situation, but you got to get rid of the investors out of there. You got to get rid of them and and just sell, sell to uh, people that are going to move into. And I, I think that'll control it. Buy, build a subdivision of a thousand homes, and you'll 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 see the 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 demand is there, but you'll see that the cost will stay 
stable and it won't go up as far because because the investors would it have a trickle down effect on the average price or the benchmark price of a home in the city because if we're increasing the supply uh would that bring the price down a little bit no because we're so far behind (laughs) uh we are so far behind um I, i we have to control the sales on those uh, on those homes, if you build them, we have to control it. Um, it it's going to take a long time before uh, it'll bring the average sale price down. It, we're 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 10, 15 years behind, Rick, and 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 ten years from now, we're still going to be ten years behind. So we got to do something now to change this. Um, and if we don't, um, it, it's it's going to be unaffordable for for anybody. Uh, to buy even kids that are in in, uh, in grade eight right now or even grade five and and once they finish college university they're not going to be able to afford to buy a house any uh, regular listener of the golfy real estate show hamilton edition which uh, comes at you saturday mornings at nine right here on 900 chml will recall a couple of weeks ago when you referred to the current market uh, conditions as crickets uh, extremely slow is that still the case it is it's uh, a lot of the agents are we're all talking to each other say how you doing on your listing how you doing on this houses are selling but you got to price it right if you're not pricing it right you are going to be sitting for a long time waiting waiting for somebody to give you the price that you want well to price it right and get uh, the best team in canada that is uh, the golfy team uh, call them at 905-575-7700 online robgolfy.com mr golfy thanks as always enjoy the day Thank you, Rick. That's Rob Golfie, sales representative, Remax Escarpment Realty, the Golfie team. And yes, the Golfie Real Estate Show, Hamilton Edition, comes at you each and every Saturday at 9 here on 900 CHML. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Back in June, you'll recall that the National Hockey League introduced a new policy, and we talked about it on the show, that is bringing an end starting the season to special nights. And I'm talking about Military uh, Appreciation Night. Um, Hockey Fights Cancer, Pride Nights also in on the mix. And it happened after a number of players refused to wear Pride-themed jerseys last season during warm-ups. You know, and and now they've gone a step further in banning Pride tape during warm-ups. You know, to me, the NHL is sending the wrong message here. They are taking a step backwards. David Palumbo is the chair of the You Can Play Project and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. David, good morning. How are you? Morning, Rick. Good to be with you. For a league that preaches inclusivity, this is a strange way of showing it. Yeah, unfortunately, um, it's as you say, it's definitely a huge step back. This is not what inclusion is about. It's not about promoting what you believe to be creating a culture of, of belonging for everyone in the hockey ecosystem. Um, it's quite frankly a head-scratcher why the tape would be just banned outright. Um, it's somewhat of a petty move I, I we just you just can't figure out the rationale behind it do you still consider the nhl an ally well you know recent moves have have not uh shown that they are behind all the words that we've worked so hard uh and the culture that we've worked so hard to protect over the past more than a decade certainly there's been a lot of great advancements and i'm proud of the work we've done in that area Um, But right now, uh, people are looking for clear, concise statements that really shows where the NHL stands. I think the company that produces this Pride tape is from Edmonton. And even since this announcement, like they've been flying off the shelves, which is great to see. 
Um, yeah, absolutely. And as you know, Rick, we were, you know, we were part of that way back when creation of, of Pride Tape. Uh, it was first used in Edmonton in 2016 and then became part after the NHL meetings uh, that year where at the time 31 teams then started using them. Uh, so it's definitely great to see. Uh, we've heard players start making comments about, well, I may just do it anyways. Or, you know, teams, I, I think one team ordered a whole case yesterday. Hmm. Uh, so definitely encouraging. Yeah, and one of those guys, I, I think he was the first to come out and say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it regardless, is uh, Scott Lawton. He plays for the Philadelphia Flyers and said, uh, I don't care what the policy is, I'm going to continue to use it. That, that's got to be, uh, you know, very heartwarming to hear. Oh, definitely. And, you know, we've heard Zach Hyman, we've heard Connor McDavid, you know, one of the biggest stars right now, uh, say that he was disappointed and he wants it reinstated. And, and I think that's the messaging that we need to continue to amplify. And that's why we've called on all our allies within the hockey ecosystem, especially the players and the players association, use your voice to explain why this matters to you. And I think more and more are coming to that, uh, that, that, that statement of understanding why this matters. And so let's continue, let's continue that discussion because at the end of the day, these decisions are made in a vacuum of silence. How damaging do you think the National Hockey League's decision is? I mean, we're, we're having the conversation, we're shining a, a spotlight on what needs to change within the game, and this is just you know a little portion of that. But do you think the, the, the league's decision has uh, some negative ramifications? Well, I think it does, in the sense, and, and, and Rick, as you know, as you mentioned at the outset, this goes across the inclusion and belonging spectrum. This isn't just about the LGBTQ plus community and our two-spirited friends uh, who participate. This goes across all what they've referred to as causes, considerations. Um, I think it does have legs because it's just not matching what otherwise has been, not so long ago, a clear statement of support. So the damage here is really in the lack of understanding of the impact of these types of decisions. And we call upon the people making these decisions around that boardroom table, reach out to your stakeholders, talk to your players, talk to your fans. It, we need to understand the impact before just minimizing that, oh, this is no, you know, not a big deal. This will blow over in a couple of days. Oh, here, here's five or six bullet points that we can point to about all the things we've done which may be true, but that's not how people are experiencing the league right now. Yeah, the National Hockey League has a long way to go to be much more inclusive, and the opportunity is right in front of them. David, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for having me. David Palumbo is the chair of the You Can Play Project, and uh, yeah, he makes he makes a good point. I kind of referenced it at the start. This is not just Pride-themed nights. This is, you know, hockey fights cancer. That's disappearing. Those pink-taped uh, sticks will be gone. Uh, Black History Month, Military Appreciation Nights. I mean, we are losing an opportunity to learn more about things we should be learning about. And it's unfortunate that the league has gone down this road. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Many of you know that I am a big fan of the classic hit sitcom Seinfeld. I can watch that show. I mean, it's in syndication. It's on virtually every channel. (laughs) If you want to find it, you can find it. Uh, or just pop in a DVD and listen and watch uh, classic episodes like this one. I am never doing that again. What? You mean in your mother's house or all together? All together. Oh, like, oh, oh give me yeah. a break. Right. <laughs> oh, oh, you don't think I can? No chance. 
You think you could? Well, I know I could hold out longer than you. Care to make it interesting? Oh, the contest. Season four, episode one. It aired November 18th, 1992. Introduced us to the phrase, the master of your own domain. It is an all-time classic. And and funny but true, executive producer Larry David, at least according to him, said the contest, that episode, that episode was based on a true story that involved him and his friend Frank Piazza, which he said lasted for a few days, and Larry ended up winning the contest. Uh, Seinfeld, as you know, ended in 1998, but Jerry sent fans of the show into a frenzy after he teased that, quote, something is going to happen that has to do with that ending, referring to the ending of the series. And he dropped this hint at the end of uh, one of his sold-out stand-up comedy shows last weekend in Boston. The ending of the show. Well, I have a little secret for you about the ending. But I can't really tell it. Here's what I'll tell you, okay? But you can't tell anybody. Something is going to happen. That has to do with that ending. Really? Hasn't happened yet. So there is now growing speculation that a Seinfeld reunion may be in the works. Bill Brio is a television critic, journalist, and author. Brio.tv is where you can find more of his content. Bill, welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you? I'm doing well, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. This this was a bit of a bombshell. Well, it's amazing, you know, here's the power. If you tell people it's a secret, that's the best way to spread news, mm-hmm. right? So um, I, I think it's uh, fascinating that it spread so quickly just from a comet at a comedy club show. But, yeah, you know, people love Seinfeld. And um, people are, you know, there's so many reunions where literally today the new um, reboot of Frasier drops, mm-hmm. you know, and there's a series that's come back. Uh, uh, and it's coming on Paramount Plus tonight. And, uh, you know, so we're always seeing these reboots and, and everything. This is more, I think, simply another episode probably of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm that Larry David does. And I think that that's probably what Seinfeld was hinting at. Mm-hmm. Because each of the characters on Seinfeld, at least the four main ones, have appeared on Curb Your Enthusiasm. They have, yeah, and uh, you know about. I think it's season seven. Thing about Curb is they it, sometimes two or three years will go by before another season, right? It's right. been twenty years of the show, but only eleven seasons. So we've been waiting and waiting for the twelfth season, and uh, yeah, but season seven, I think they did a couple of reunions. That, like on the they they recreated the set of Seinfeld, and the four of them were on there, and they were pretty good episodes. So. Um, but I don't think that they'll ever reboot the series. I think they've all, Seinfeld and David in particular, they want to leave it as the golden memory that we have of the original run. Yeah, Jerry has been quite adamant that, you know, the show had its run. It was tremendous. It was, you know, at the top of the charts, and he kind of, you know, walked away from it, very happy with how it all obviously transpired. I mean, he's he's a multi-millionaire, if not billionaire at this point. And as I said, it's quite adamant that it's it's not going to come back in that kind of iteration. But this still, you know, adds some fuel to the fire because we we love that show. We do. And uh, we love, uh, there's so many episodes of it. They did uh, nine or 10 seasons, I think. And uh, I think, you know, maybe the one guy who could, uh, you know, benefit from uh, another paycheck might be Michael Richards. But Uh you're right. Uh, Money isn't the motivator for most of those people. Do you think, however it kind of plays out on Curb, if that is going to be kind of the end game to this, you know, tease from Jerry, 
do you think it will whet the appetite or maybe convince them that, you know, maybe they should do, I don't know, a, a 90 minute kind of special of Seinfeld just to win you know, one more kick at the can? I doubt it. You know, uh, the friends waited and waited and they did a, a reunion special and it was kind of sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. And I, I think what motivates them a bit is 25 years of criticism for that Seinfeld finale. Right. It was terrible. Uh, you know, it literally is generally suggested it's the worst finale of any popular show. Uh, I know when Letterman's show was winding down, he had 10 people come on stage to do the top 10 reasons why we're sad to see Dave go. And Julie Louis-Dreyfus said, uh, this is a chance for me to be in, a, in another horrible finale. You know, <laughs> So they joke about it amongst themselves. Yeah. But I think probably they would like to put uh, a different spin on what's, the, the you know the worst memory of their series. And the fact of the matter is, you just can't in this day and age. You know, all the, all these years later, kind of recreate what was what was uh, you know a mega hit and expect it to resonate in the same light, right? Yeah, and TV has changed so much. You know, like sitcoms, uh, the 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 network format of having commercials every seven minutes and. Uh, you know, it, it's it's almost anyone under 30 uh, wasn't alive mm-hmm. when that that clip you ran from Seinfeld aired. Uh, and 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 the, the way shows are constructed is even different now. You know, my kids are in their early 30s. They think the TV's broken when when I something like that comes on. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it's just hard. And that's why the challenge is for Frasier. And I've seen the, the new episodes of Frasier. Uh, it takes a while for it to get its rhythm, even when you've got somebody as skilled as Kelsey Grammer yeah. recreating a character he played for 20 years. So it's very, very hard to go back. Do you think that's going to be a hit? Well, it's different metrics, right? So it's on a streaming service. They're only doing 10 episodes. They used to do 24 or 25 yeah. a season. Um yeah, you know, I, I'm I was pleasantly surprised. I didn't have high hopes because there's no Niles. You know, Frasier without Niles, without David Hyde Pierce, that's like Laurel without Hardy. But uh, you know, that he didn't bring the same people from Cheers with him to Seattle when he did Frasier. So, yeah, it does seem like he can reboot the show as an older Frasier, and uh, now he's sort of playing off. Freddie, who is the son character, who's now 30. And, uh, yeah, I think it I think it works. Hmm. Should be interesting to watch. Bill, thanks for the time today and uh, waking up with us here on Good Morning Hamilton. My pleasure, Rick. Bill Briou, television critic, journalist, and author. Check him out online at briou.tv. That's B-R-I-O-U-X dot TV. Some great TV-related content on that website. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.